course, like every other teenage kid, I had no idea what I wanted to do with my life. When I was 16 years old, I took off and drove across the country to Wyoming, went into the Wind River Range and discovered mountains. In 1973, Yvonne Chouinard founded Patagonia. I never wanted to be a businessman. All I wanted to do was do my craft and climb mountains. So then I had to figure out a way to where I was going to be a businessman, but I was going to do it completely on my own terms. Build the best product, cause no unnecessary harm, inspire and implement solutions to the environmental crisis. Join us at Patagonia.com. You're listening to The Dirtbag Diaries, a production of Duct Tape Then Beer. With additional support from REI, Fireside Provisions, and Kuat Racks. Now these folks here today, very lively, chanting climate justice, shall know we won't go. And they have banners also saying, save the Arctic and other sentiments. Now, Summer 2015. You probably caught this on your Facebook feed or on the news. Protesters are not only in the Willamette River, they're actually hanging above the water, just below a bridge there. You're looking at 13 of them who are hanging off of the St. John's Bridge. So this is a, a precarious position that they're in. Of course, they have put themselves here in this position, protesting uh, Shell. Seattle, they pushed through Alaska, and now they're trying to push through Portland. Um, we're not going to let them. Shell's icebreaker, Fenica, was scheduled to head north from Portland to the Arctic Ocean. Weeks earlier, Shell's massive drill platform, the Polar Pioneers, successfully cleared a blockade of kayakers in Seattle to head north. Shell hoped to use a small six-week window to place new wells in the Arctic Ocean, and now it needed the Fenica to bring one pivotal piece of equipment for capping the wells. Environmental groups' attempts to block the drilling through the courts had come up short. The week earlier, the Obama administration finalized Shell's permits. So 13 Greenpeace protesters rappelled off the side of St. John's Bridge with belay seats and portal edges and hung there suspended 100 feet above the water. Basically, they created a human wall between the port and open water. To break the blockade, the Fenica would have to plow through them like a hiker clearing early morning cobwebs from the trail. And for two days, they held tight until ultimately police were able to lower just enough of them for the Fenica to squeeze through. And the whole thing, well, it was... It was pretty damn cool. I mean, it was kind of burly. I mean, regardless of whether you agree with the politics, it just sounds cool, right? A bunch of people using outdoor expertise to wrap off the side of a Portland bridge to stand their ground against an icebreaker. This sounds, dare I say it, it sounds like, could it be type three fun? When it comes to defiant protests against international oil companies, does it get any burlier, more ridiculous than the St. John's Bridge? Let's break it down. First off, the Raptivists. Can we call them that? The Raptivists? Okay, I'm going to do that. Anyway, the Raptivists, they're smack in the middle of Portland, a city known for bicycles, food trucks, and hipsters. They were never more than a few miles from artisanal donuts. This could have been way more remote. Second, it was hot out by Pacific Northwest standards. Admittedly, maybe uncomfortably hot, but a good day to be around the water with a nice breeze. Third, most of this unfolded in the light. You know what would make this a really good story? If it were in the middle of nowhere. It was a lot colder, like maybe 120 degrees colder. And there was a lot of darkness. Honestly, when that idea came up back then for the first time, it, I wanted to do it. 
partly because it seemed like the right thing to do and it was a way to draw this attention. This is my friend Dan Rithman, longtime activist and Arctic wanderer. But I also wanted to do it because it seemed pretty badass to go out there and camp on the Arctic Ocean. The battle over climate change, yes, it unfolds here, at home, every day. But if there ever were a front line for the struggles, it is the remote, wild, seldom visited Arctic. Today, we present Trespassers, the story of the cat and mouse battle for the Arctic that you've never heard about. And frankly, that's a shame because it involves blizzards, ex-special forces, jumping out of planes, and wiretap phones. You know, total type three fun. Sometimes there's a thin line between standing up for our wild places and adventuring in them. I'm Fitz Cahal, and you're listening to The Dirtbag Diaries. It was 1999. Adjusted for inflation, gas was cheap. It hadn't been that cheap since the early 1970s. And I remember this because I was on one of my first climbing road trips and I was psyched to see that gas cost 89 cents a gallon. Even though supply was abundant, finding and developing new sources of oil was getting trickier for the big oil companies. And historically low prices are typically a good sign that higher prices are on the way. So it's a good time to invest. The shallow Beaufort Sea north of Prudhoe Bay has lots of oil, but this wasn't the Gulf of Mexico. The shifting Arctic pack ice would tear apart a standard drilling rig, so BP came up with an audacious $686 million plan. Their plan was to go out in the middle of winter when the ocean was frozen, and they would dig a big hole in the ice, and they would drive dump truck after dump truck of gravel and dump it into that hole in the ice and create an artificial gravel island out six miles offshore, and then they would bury a pipeline from that gravel island onto shore, and they took that up to the Trans-Alaska Pipeline to get the oil out of there. They called it North Star, a name both poetically deceptive and telling. It's not a tree in sight, that's the the part that I love about it is that you can see forever. You can see all the folds of the land. Yeah, I don't know if I love that place or I'm obsessed by it or it's some combination of both, but I, it's the place that speaks to me more than, than any other place. And it's, it's the combination of the landscape and the kind of wildness of it. It's the wildlife that you can find there. The North Slope is the 100-mile swath of land that runs from the 9,000-foot peaks of the Brooks Range to the Arctic Ocean. For the first 30 miles, rivers meander through old glacial moraines. There it turns to flat plains, blanketed in wildflowers and green shrubs in the spring and summer, and home to birds, caribou herds, and polar bears. The plains give way to lagoons and gravel barrier islands, and then the ocean. Certainly in the United States, there's really no other place like it where uh, communities of people are still that connected to the land and rely that much on the land and waters for their subsistence. And so all of that together just makes it the most special place, not just that I've been, but that I can even imagine. 
This was also the beginning of the modern climate movement. Industrialized nations had just gathered in Japan and signed the Kyoto Protocol, a treaty that acknowledged that global warming was happening and that carbon emissions were the culprit. It also asserted that collectively, we had to do something about it. To acknowledge this shift in public sentiment, BP pulled out a classic trick from the corporate playbook and rebranded themselves. They changed their slogan to Beyond Petroleum. They changed their logo from the shape of the interstate highway sign to the current Helios symbol, a symbol of the ancient Greek god of the sun. And they started to talk about alternative energy. And then they kept doing business just as normal, just as they always had, and started the North Star Project. At the time, Dan was a field coordinator for the Anchorage Office of Greenpeace, the activist organization that worked tirelessly within the system and then often grabbed headlines with decidedly outside-the-system acts like chaining themselves to bulldozers or harassing whaleboats. These direct actions. To some people, it made them like a real-life embodiment of Hey Duke, heroes who didn't play by the rules. To others, Greenpeace actions were dangerous, a black guy to the movement, and even downright loathed. Regardless of how people felt about Greenpeace, they felt that way because Greenpeace was very effective at grabbing headlines and moving issues that might have been given a place deep inside a newspaper, like on page A13, onto the screens of millions of Americans watching the nightly news. When it came to North Star, they'd exhausted their more conservative options. And we did everything. We fought them in the courts, and we fought them in the court of public opinion, and we filed appeals, and we sued them, and we, we drug this project on and on. And finally, we just ran out of options with ways to stop them. As soon as the ocean froze and the sun set on the long Arctic winter, construction of the island would begin. Greenpeace decided that direct action needed to be taken. There was only one problem. In order to do that, they would have to do it in the dead middle of winter in the Arctic, a place where the average temperature hovers around negative 30 Fahrenheit, and where chaining yourself to heavy machinery wouldn't just get you arrested, it might get you killed. Greenpeace assembled a team. Dan, the local campaigner who had spent a number of summers guiding and traveling in the Arctic, Hank Hazen, a Dutch man who built an ice-class sailboat and made a living sailing people from Tierra del Fuego down to Antarctica in the boat, he would act as a trip leader. Peter Morris, a technical wizard and a field coordinator for Doctors Without Borders in Kosovo and elsewhere, he would handle the logistics. Stephen Morgan would photograph the mission. In addition, the team included a woman from New Zealand with Maori blood, two English campaigners who had dangled themselves from oil rigs before, and a Polish guy who had traveled to the North and South Poles for science. Then there was Ulrich. So we actually hired this guy named Ulrich, who was a former member of the Danish military, and he'd been part of what they called their Sirius Patrol, which was the, the Danish special forces that patrolled Greenland. So he was a pretty badass guy when it came to winter travel. Okay, so the Sirius Patrol, according to National Geographic, is, quote, an elite special forces unit that is legendary in Denmark for driving soldiers to the limits of self-deprivation and mental fortitude. Damn. Denmark established the patrol to enforce Danish control over the mineral-rich, unsettled area of Greenland. Six pairs patrol a 60,000-square-mile wilderness, nearly the size of Washington state, by dog sled. An average temperature is usually about negative 25 degrees Fahrenheit and as low as negative 67 degrees in a place so far north that during winter, the sun disappears for two months. 
Each ranger works a two-year stint for bad pay with no holidays off and no option to return home. Individual patrols can last up to four months. Until recently, applicants were not allowed to have wives or girlfriends. So yeah, like Dan said, they're pretty badass when it comes to winter travel. Initially, Ulrich wasn't real sure about the Greenpeace activists. He didn't really have, want to have anything to do with the actual protesting or wasn't really even bought into the idea that we shouldn't be drilling for oil in the Arctic Ocean. Um, but he, he agreed to teach us how to survive, how to be safe out there on the frozen ice. So the team spent the next month and a half training with Ulrich on frozen lakes around Anchorage until he deemed them ready to survive on their own. Mid-February, the activists decided the time had come to launch their effort. They would snowmobile out onto the ice near the North Star site and set up an advanced camp, just tents and personal gear that they could slowly resupply into a base camp. They didn't have a plan yet for what the action itself would be, the thing that they would do to actively stop BP. Or they wanted at least to come up with something splashy enough to turn the world's head. And then just a couple days before we were going to start, Ulrich stumbled across this like DC-3 airplane, like a big dual-propellered tail-dragging cargo plane, like what you see in World War II movies and stuff. And he thought, oh, we could fly it out there and land on the frozen Arctic Ocean. And that would be spectacular and it would be visually stunning and Greenpeace people would love that. And then I think Ulrich wanted to do it because he wanted to parachute out of the airplane, you know, once a special forces guy, always a special forces guy. So that became the plan. They bought the plane and flew to Purdue Bay, the closest town to the BP project. Then they snowmobiled six miles out onto the frozen Arctic Ocean to a spot two miles from North Star Island with four small backpacking tents and a week of rations. The plan was that the plane would show up two days later with the rest of the gear to set up a real base camp. They arrived and set up their camp in the middle of the night, and then they spent the next day smoothing a runway on the ice. The day after that, the plane showed up. So here comes the plane. We could hear it sort of lumbering along, and you finally you could see it, and it gets over the spot, and it circles around. But Ulrich never jumps out, and it circles around a couple times, and then it turns around, and it goes back. It goes back over the land and disappears behind the Brooks Range Mountains, 200 miles past. We watch it disappear. They called base in Anchorage on a sat phone to find out what the hell had happened. And it turns out that the pilot got chicken. Like this pilot who told Ulrich that he was totally confident to land this big plane on skis on this frozen ocean, got out there and saw the frozen ocean and freaked out and wouldn't do it. Ulrich managed to talk the pilot into one more try the next day. So that night, while we're waiting, this huge storm kicks up. It felt like every bit of flaky snow and ice that fell on the North Pole had blown past us in this three days of just 24 hours a day of unrelenting wind. And uh, it was cold. I mean, it was probably the highs were minus 25 and the lows were dipping into the minus 50s and wind chill, God knows what it was. And it was dark, it was dark for 20 plus hours a day. So there wasn't a whole lot to do other than sit in your tent with your little buddy, partner, and get to know a lot about them and whatever they'd done in the past. 
it was really interesting that that time when we were confined to the tents because you'd wake up in the morning and you're freezing cold and you're stuck in your sleeping bag and you want to get the heater going in the tent and you'd reach out and you'd try to light the stove and you'd get it going and slowly the tent would warm up you could get it to into the 30s i think you could sit there comfortably in a jacket but it was never hot but there were times when the we'd get the two burner stoves going and the candles would go out and i learned that my brain takes less air than a candle does to actually work the team had been out on the ice for a week when the storm finally blew itself out yeah how does that uh, runway look from up there over our perfectly smooth Arctic Ocean is now a wave of snowy drifts. The first day the weather cleared, the team spent another day smoothing the ice into a runway with hand shovels, and then the plane tried again. Plane flies up and Ulrich jumps out and parachutes down and floats down to the ice and we get that on film so Greenpeace is excited because it looks cool and the plane lands and we unload everything out of the plane and the uh, plane takes off and things are starting to finally look up. At the heart of their base camp sat two round huts made of insulated fabric. One they used for a bunkhouse and the other for a kitchen and base of operations. Eight wind generators and a battery storage bank. Just to be clear, Greenpeace had hoped to do this kind of in secrecy. Greenpeace didn't intend to draw attention to themselves until now, until they had their camp established. But nothing happens in Pudo Bay that is a secret. Now, with their camp established, it was time to check out BP's hole in the ice. So Dan and the photographer, Steve, got on a snow machine. So we drove out and we probably stopped about 100 yards from where this big hole had been cut in the ice. And we stood there and we could watch the big gravel trucks come up and dump the gravel into the ice. And we did like a little news blurb thing, you know, hi, I'm Dan Ritzman standing on the frozen Arctic Ocean. Um, his mouth is. Hello, this is Dan Ritzman. I work as a campaigner for Greenpeace in its effort to stop global warming. I'm standing on the frozen ice of the Arctic Ocean, about six miles off the northern coast of Alaska. It's cold up here. That was like the splash that launched the whole campaign. The next day, Dan and Steve got on their snow machine and drove back to the same spot. And we got there, and there was a no trespassing sign stuck in the ice. And it was just arbitrary where they stuck it. They just had stuck it at the furthest encroachment that we had done. And they'd stuck one, then about every 100 yards, they stuck a sign all the way around this big hole they'd cut in the ice. So you have to imagine that you're on the frozen Arctic Ocean. You, you know, you're six miles from shore. You can't really tell where the ocean stops and the white shore begins. You, all you see is white and this, this thing where they're dumping crap into the ocean to make this island. That's all you see. And there, stuck in the ice is a sign that says, no trespassing. This land, land, has been leased by British Petroleum and they get to control whoever, whatever happens behind this sign. For the next week, we settled into this pattern where we would bear witness on what they were doing. Every day, they would snowmobile out to the hole, film their clips, and send them back to Greenpeace in Anchorage. But it was so cold that even standing at the edge of the hole for a few hours of daylight, 
proved a real challenge. I mean, that was the driving factor, was just staying warm. Even though we had like all the latest gear, it was still just freezing cold all the time. And any exposed skin would get frost bit or nipped. So they brought out this round structure and placed it just outside of the no trespassing sign, just 100 yards away from the colony of machines. This would act as an auxiliary base camp. It kind of looked like a cartoon version of something people would live in on the moon. And it had the word Greenpeace stenciled across the side in yellow. Eight by eight feet with a Coleman stove inside for warmth. They called it the Apple Hut because it was red. We're out there. We're pretty set up. We know how to get around. We're comfortable in the environment now. We've got our little Apple Hut. And then one day, we go out to the Apple Hut and we get to the hut and somebody has jimmied open the door. And they'd come and they'd cut off the lock and they'd open the door. And we go inside and nothing has changed except there's a little scrap of notebook paper sitting on the stove. And it's just like a, a, a yellow piece of paper that was torn out of a notebook. And it says, if this hut is left abandoned, it will be confiscated. And then it's signed, the Alaska State Troopers. Nobody's name or anything, just the Alaska State Troopers. So we look at the note and we have a little huddle. We're like, there's no way that we can have them take our hut. Like this thing's critical for safety and just surviving up here. So we look at the island and on the island is three pickup trucks and the security folks, that's what they would do. They'd sit in their like Ford F-150 pickup trucks with their engines running because they didn't want to get cold. Imagine a group of kids playing capture the flag. The no trespassing signs marked the lines between the two sides. The activists would walk along their side of the line and film their newscasts, and the security officers would stay on the other side of the line and follow the activists around in their trucks, ready to stop them if they bolted for the flag. But now Hank and Dan, they needed to cross the line to talk to the guys in the trucks, because if they wanted to keep their hut, they realized they had to figure out who wrote the note, and they had reason with them. So they crossed the no trespassing sign to walk up to one of the trucks. We walk up to the first truck, and there's a guy sitting in the truck, with a video camera and he's filming us as we walk up. And uh, we say, did you write this note? And he says, do you know you're trespassing? And we said, we just wanna know who wrote this note. And he said, do you know you're trespassing? And so we left that truck and we walked over to the second truck. And he said, before we said anything, do you know you're trespassing? And we said, we just wanna talk to the person who wrote the note. And he said, well, the Alaska State Troopers wrote the note. And we said, well, we'd like to talk to them. And he says, oh, they'll be here in a minute. Well, all right, we're going to go back to our hut. Could you have them, you know, we'd like to talk to them when they get here. So we turn around and we walk back to our hut. And we're standing there, the four of us now. And uh, this British Petroleum bus rolls up to where the trucks are. And 12 Alaska State Troopers get out of the truck. And I think we all kind of knew that we were in trouble when that happened. The troopers trudged over, and the lead trooper approached Dan. And he looked at me, and he's like, uh, I hear you trespassed. And I said, I just wanted to find out who wrote this note. And he says, you're under arrest for trespassing. And I said, can't you just tell us who wrote this note? And he said, are you resisting arrest? We're like, no, we just wanted to know who wrote this note. And he said, I wrote the note. 
And we said, well, why didn't you sign it? And he said, I did sign it. I am the Alaska State Troopers. And so he put the little zip tie handcuffs on us. I don't know why, we're out in the middle of nowheresville. And while all this was happening, our photographer guy, Steve, is taking our pictures while we're being arrested and he steps behind the no trespassing sign to take our picture. And the cops arrest him too. Had you ever been arrested before that? No, never. The troopers put Dan, Hank, and Steve on a BP bus and drove them back to Bordeaux Bay, where they spent the night in the local jailhouse. The next morning, the police stuck the three of them on an airplane back to Anchorage while their friends remained out on the ice. And it was funny because it was like the oil field service airplane. So it's like this old 737 that they fly all the oil field workers back and forth. So here's these three dudes who've not showered in probably three weeks. And all these burly-ish oil field guys like crammed into this plane flying home. And it felt like shrinking into my seat the whole time as they're just staring at us. The team arrived in Anchorage to discover that they each had a $10,000 bail on their head. An outrageous amount for simple trespassing, the highest the bail bondsman had ever seen. Clearly, BP and troopers wanted to send a message. Greenpeace brought in their lawyers that got out of jail and pieced together what had happened. It turned out that the day they snowmobiled out onto the ice, before the plane made even its first pass, the state of Alaska stationed 12 state troopers in Purdue Bay to wait for Greenpeace to do something. This is before they'd done anything. They were ready for them. For two weeks, they sat in this tiny town. The entire borough region only had about 7,000 people and waited for an opportunity to pounce. By the time they brought Dan, Hank, and Steve in, they had long since run out of patience. The three of them stayed in Anchorage, and Greenpeace rented an apartment for Steve and Hank while they worked with the lawyer to try to get the case dismissed. The lawyer lived an hour south of Anchorage, so they would talk to him over conference calls at the office. After one of those calls, they walked back to the apartment to find something strange. And so they go inside their rented, furnished apartment, and their answering machine is blinking. And they were like, well, that's strange, because we never gave anybody that number. They never used that phone for other than a call out maybe for pizza or something, right? So they go up, and they push the little button on the machine, and it plays back a recording of our conference call with our lawyer. And... I mean, we were freaked out. One, at first, I think, just freaked out that it was like such a kind of heavy-handed display of the power of the state. From then on, we did all of our business outside on our cell phones, like pacing around, around downtown Anchorage as we talked about whatever was happening. Greenpeace sent three replacements up to the camp on the frozen ocean. Part of the condition of bales that Dan, Hank, and Steve, none of them could return to the North Slope borough. So the other people went up and the campaign went on. And the kind of irony of all of this was while we were up there trying to figure out what we could do to actually put a halt to this process, to draw people's attention, to say, look, we're standing up, we're drawing a line in the ice. There was literally nothing we could do. It was too damn cold. You couldn't be outside for more than half an hour or an hour until you got just 
overly cold, especially if we weren't moving. You know, my joke was like, we should just put our tongue on the backhoe and be like frozen to it. You know, if nine guys stuck their tongue to the backhoe, you'd be like, but it was the irony. It was they were like, oh, Greenpeace is going to do something crazy. And we were like, I don't know what we can do. It's really harsh. Like this environment's hard. Greenpeace stayed at the ice camp through early April until BP had their shareholder meeting in England. The bigger, though less flashy part of the activism happened at the shareholder meeting itself. Greenpeace bought a handful of shareholder stakes in the names of a handful of Alaska natives so that they could speak their concerns at the meeting to the shareholders, the people who really had the most influence over the company. In the end, 15% of the shareholders sided with Greenpeace, which the activists saw as a huge success. BP had to sit up and take notice, and they didn't move forward with another similar project. But the North Star Island? That definitely ended up getting built. BP's initial investment of $686 million on that single well has likely generated $8 billion of oil. These kind of actions provide these opportunities in these moments for people to stand up and be counted and get involved. And I think they do matter. They definitely change the dialogue. And I think it, the powers that be who you are targeting with your actions don't necessarily want to turn around and say to you, oh, what you've done has completely changed my mind. But you can see it happen. This last summer, even though the Fenica broke the blockade, Something happened in the fall, something incredible. In September, Shell decided it would walk away from Arctic drilling for the foreseeable future. The returns on their test holes simply wouldn't warrant the high cost of getting the oil out of there. Three weeks later, the Obama administration reversed course and canceled the auction of leases for 2016 and 2017, and formally rejected the bids Statoil, ConocoPhillips, and Shell made for more time to search for the crude on existing leases. Then in November... Obama rejected another huge oil and gas project, the Keystone Pipeline. It was a major victory, a string of them, for environmentalists and the climate change movement. Do you think your time up in the Arctic, even though you guys couldn't quite figure out what you should do to get the headlines or, or what action you should take, um, do, you think, do you think it made it, ended up making a difference? You know, it's, it's, it's set this sort of climate campaigning in motion you know back 20 years ago it was a pretty nascent campaign you know it's taken all these years for the movement to build and to get to such a place where you we were able to stop shell and to defeat the keystone pipeline and all of that had to start somewhere and i think it all started back in the late 90s these moments can happen that something triggers people to get involved and do just a little bit more and whether that was the hundreds and hundreds of kayakers that got out on Puget Sound and and formed a ring around the Shell's oil rigs and and spent weeks just going out there every day and trying to keep the drumbeat going saying that this is a crazy thing to do or whether it was the Greenpeace activists in Portland that dangled down from the St. John's Bridge. I know some of the activists that did the bridge thing, and I think they they did it because it was the right thing to do, and they also did it because it seemed pretty badass to dangle from a 
from a bridge. And maybe that's the biggest part of it, is to kind of look at what's, what's coming next and to see other activists stepping up and stepping forward and, and moving these campaigns on. The kind of conservation side has to win every time, all the time. Like you might win now, but who's to say 10 or 15 years from now that that all won't come back, that the demand for oil or some other resources will be so great that it'll again put pressure on that place. That's just the way it is, and people will stand up and, and fight for what's right then. These days, Dan lives in Seattle and still works fighting to save the Arctic as part of the Sierra Club. The Diaries is made possible by the good people of Patagonia. All this spring, the Warnware Tour is out on the road all throughout the West. So bring your old gear, things that have holes, rips, tears, seams coming apart, bring them there. And they'll teach you how to fix them or they'll fix them for you. Check it out at patagonia.com slash US slash Additional support comes from RAI, who believes that a life outdoors is a life well-lived. And from Fireside Provisions, mouth-watering meals for campfire or cabin. And from Kuat Racks, makers of lightweight, stylish, and easy-to-use products that help adventurers get out and do more. Check out their lineup of roof racks and hitch racks at kuatracks.com. I've got mine on the back of the truck, and tomorrow, I leave for the desert. Sight! Support for the Diaries comes from you. To pledge your support, click the button in the upper right-hand corner of our website, dirtbagdiaries.com. Thank you so much for everyone who has contributed already. You do truly keep us thriving. Music today by Chris Zabriskie, Kai Angle, The King in Yellow, Chronix, Messiah 23, Publish the Quest, and our friend Amy Stolzenbach. Jacob Bain and Nice Koto wrote our theme song. As always, you can find the links to the artists on our website. Big thanks to Dan Ritzman for sharing his story. This episode was written and produced by me, Fitzka Hall, with help from Jen Altschul. Our executive producer is Becca Call. You've been listening to the Dirtbag Diaries. Thanks for tuning in.